brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Hey, what's going on? This is Rad with another episode of Soft Rep Radio. And today I have a very legendary guest. But first, I have to mention we have a merch store that helps to keep that fireplace going and to keep me on the screen. If you go to softrep.com, check out the merchandise that we have available for you to purchase that's branded with our logo, things that you guys already love. Go check it out. Help support us. Click on something. Send it to a gift to somebody. Just get something from the merch store. Also, we have a book club. Books are awesome, right? Like this book right here, Call Me Hunter by Jim Shockey, okay? And that is our guest today. Call Me Hunter. Welcome to the show, Jim Shockey. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. So the reason why you're so notoriously popular in your community is you like to like, am I right? Black Rifle Hunt? Yeah, Black Powder. Excuse me, yes. Black Powder. Like Davy Crockett uh, used, only a little bit modernized. That's how I um, made my name in, the, in our industry. Uh, but I use archery just as much and bow and arrow or, or rifle as well. Right. What do you uh, enjoy really, you know, moving through the bush with? Do you enjoy a compound bow? Do you enjoy the rifle muzzle style movement? What's your, uh, what do you like to there? What gets well, snagged? I mean, the, ult- <laughs> yeah, the, the ultimate, ultimate hunt is, is archery. Mm-hmm. When, when you're, you've got a, a stick and a string and a, and a pointy arrow, I mean, you, you have to be close. So, and, and as a hunter, if we're talking about hunting, that, that's what you want to do is get as close as possible to get that primal feeling of, of there's your quarry. And you, I, I, you know, I'll use this probably often, touch your ancestral soul by, mm-hmm. by being able to get that close to the animal. So, so archery is, is, is my, you know, that, that's the ultimate in, in hunting, but it's also very difficult, takes time. You feel like you're one with the animals that you're stalking and about to partake of and uh, share. I'm sure you share the food with others, right? Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. It, it, we are all part of nature, regardless mm-hmm. of whether we live in downtown New York City up in a penthouse. You know, if we think we're not, we don't have an environmental footprint because you know, we're vegan, then give me a break. Yeah, right. Of course, yeah. we're all part of nature. So, so yeah, when you're in the wildlands, it, you, you're as close as you can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what we, what we were and, and hopefully what we will be in the future. Well, honestly, to that point, you know, someone who myself, I, I really don't eat a lot of red meat at all. And uh, I, I'll, I'll take some chicken here and there. But I would say that hunting it the way that you and others like uh, that go out there, the Cameron Haynes, the yourselves of the world that go out and stock these and then butcher it. You know, a lot of self-butcher. I don't know if you self-butcher or, uh, you know, have. Of course. <laughs> you know, I just feel that there's a little bit difference of what's in the supermarket versus what you're putting on your plate, right? Why do I have to eat what's there? Why is somebody forcing me to eat that wrapped up food, you know, and versus not? And I think a vegan is trying to do something right. And I think that the person hunting the animal that is doing something right. So, Everybody's going to leave a footprint. It's just at least somebody's trying to do something right. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and they're standing for something. Right. I mean, I, I've, got, I've got lots of friends that are vegans, and, and I, I think it's wonderful. But they also recognize that their soybean fields are monocultures that right. took away habitat for wildlife. The reality is there's 8 billion of us in this world, 
and there's you know there's not enough in the way of resources so we have to have industrial farming to feed the people who live in the cities uh, not everybody can go and do what i do no I mean, it's it's not possible once we turned into an agrarian culture back ten thousand years ago whatever anybody believes um, cement jungles then it, then it's you know, we just started multiplying. And, and so we have to have cows and, and sheep and goats and pigs. And, and there has to be industrial farming, regardless of how people may or may not agree with the methods of, of uh, raising those animals. But the reality is not everybody can be a vegan. Not everybody can be a hunter and, and hunter-gatherer. Correct. Food so, so that's why we have the wrapped-up packages. And thank goodness for the ranchers out there and the farmers. Otherwise, you know, they those people in the city wouldn't have anything to eat. You know, I just had a conversation with a, a friend, Kyle Bucket, yesterday. He's a former Navy SEAL, and I had him on the show. And we were talking about that, and he was saying, you know, he just moved to Texas. And for the first time, he just, like, have to steer with his, uh, with his buddy out there. So he comes from the city where it's never, like, an option to have your fridge full of just your own food right there. He gets to Texas, and it's like, hey, you want to half this with me? And it's like, your food, here it is. Yeah, you know, sort of aside to that, I came from the other side of the spectrum where where I grew up. I grew up in a trailer park out in mm-hmm. Saskatchewan. Same. And if my my dad <laughs> didn't get his moose every fall, we didn't eat meat in the winter. So sure. it was macaroni for us. And and I didn't realize you could buy half a cow until I was in high school. And that's what I found out. Some of the other people did. You know, when they didn't, you mean if your dad doesn't get a moose, you just go buy meat. It just but, but, you know, so I come from the exact opposite spectrum, but just as, you know, incredulous that you could, you could have, buy half Your dad's half. like, I'm not taking a knee. I'm getting that moose. I am not <laughs> taking a knee. No, you won't. I have no. never taken a knee. <laughs> and you won't either. <laughs> but getting something like that, you know, there's, there's a, I want to say holistic way of approach to the animal becoming your food is okay, right? If you're doing it out of that respect. I, you know, it's okay for everybody. Yeah. I, I tolerate you know, for me, I think tolerance is a, is the most important word going forward in this world. With eight billion of us, we Agreed. we're going to have to understand that right and wrong is a cultural perspective. We we all know what is right and what is wrong. We know that. I mean, you just you you know that inside you. Yes. But, uh, cultural perspective is what's up. I live this way. I live this way. You got to agree with me, and I don't. You know, I disagree with you, and you know, I'm tolerant, but uh, I don't agree with you. It's we have to actually be tolerant. So. So I, I don't have a problem with how people eat and survive and what they believe in, and and, and I think it's great. You know, it's, it's gonna, we're going to have to start getting along here at some point. Well, yeah. There's nowhere else to go. No, because that book right here, this the, the Call Me Hunter book, it preys on your psyche of you being out on these hunts and creating these thoughts. I have to feel like, you know that have are coming into this book is am i kind of hitting on that like you're out there and you you know things it's just you and no internet and you're like coming up with these ideas is that how this came to pass yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean honestly I, I spent you know when you're sitting on a mountain <laughs> yeah. kyrgyzstan somewhere and and you're waiting for hours and hours you're you you have time to center your focus i guess and and i wanted to tell the story that started when I was 10 years old. There, there's a lot of this book is autobiographical. So that's in a way what you're asking is, did some of these things happen or did you make them up or were they, you know, did they just come out of thin air up in the, yeah, no, they, they I spent the time on those mountains figuring out a way to tell this story hmm. in a novel format. I, autobiographical writing is pretty easy. It's just, to me, it's not challenging, but, but in a novel form, 
that's challenging. So I spent a lot of time out in the mountains and, and the situations I was in, experiences, that is all incorporated into this book. That, that's uh, this novel. That, that's why I wrote it, was to make it, to blur the lines of reality and fiction. Mm-hmm. What, what is real? Google it. Google it. Go, go ahead. Yeah, Google yeah, you say that. You say it. Uh, it's, it says challenge right me. Up front. Yeah, right, right <laughs> up. Go figure out what's what's real and what's... I defy anybody to find things in there that aren't true. I mean, it, yeah, they're, you know, good luck. Let me read this real quick. It says here on the back of your book that I got, I'm going to read this little blurb about you. It says, Jim Shockey is a Canadian writer. Just so my audience understands what your, a little bit of your background is. Canadian writer, worldwide adventurer, wilderness outfitter, television producer, and host. I mean, you got a whole Swiss army knife of weaponry. You know, where's the toothpick? It's right here. Here you go. You probably got one in that hat band or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, 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 I've lived 100 miles an hour for yeah. since I was. I left home at 17, just, and I've been on the road ever since. What so happened at 17? Where'd you go at 17? I went to university. I, I grew up in Saskatchewan, and I, I um, had a little falling out with my mother. So I went to my dad, and I said, "Look, either mom goes or I'm leaving you." And and <laughs> that was kind of he, he made the decision for me in, in a lot of ways. So I. I left with $300 in my pocket. I was a good athlete, so I, I actually called up the university, the coach of the swim team, and said, hey, I'm thinking about coming out there. It, you know, it, the, no entrance exams, no... I mean, literally, school was starting in, a, in about three days, and he said, I'll get you on the team with a scholarship. So so I went out there with my $300 and applied for every bursary and scholarship I could. I was an IBM scholarship winner for... The first two years, IBM. Yeah, IBM. <laughs> made a fruit. They made this fruit. This fruit company. <laughs> yeah, it was the, it was at Fortran. I had no idea of computer language, but I got the IBM scholarship as well as my uh, my sports scholarship to help pay my way. I just figured out a way to live. I was, you know, all those different things when you're saying them, I'm going. It's probably because I was unemployable. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I had to do so many different things in my life mm-hmm. and figure it out. But I also, you know. Harkening back to my childhood, I had to listen to my mom and dad talk every dinner about whether dad would get laid off, whether we'd have the money. When we finally did buy a house, whether we could afford the mortgage or whether we'd lose the house. I mean, this is as a 10-year-old, I'm listening to this stuff, and I said, never, ever will I live like that. You you get one life, and I live my life on my terms, not not with someone else standing over me, dictating you know my happiness, my joy. You know, it's, it's one life. Everybody gets one life, and that's also what Call Me Hunter is about. Uh, is you get one life, so so live it, live it, because there's no readers as far as we know. No, live it to the fullest. Get yourself on, get yourself on the cover. What is that? Outdoor life over your shoulder, right there. Is that what I see? Yeah, right over there. Yeah, get yourself a an author deal and Call Me Hunter and. <laughs> you know, I, I like to watch Arnold Schwarzenegger's documentary lately that he put out, and he says, you know, I wanted to be on the cover of Hercules, and so I just focused on how to be him, the guy that was Hercules on the cover of Hercules, the movie, when he was 16 years old in Austria. And he's like, what does he do? How do I get on the cover? And then he just focused and focused and focused and focused and just lifted and lifted and never was happy with himself, even though we were happy with him. You know... That was an interesting documentary. I, I love the guy. I love I the do. documentary. He, he just was a guy who lived 
his life. He exactly. truly lived his life, and, and he set goals for himself, and he, he's still setting goals. So, I mean, governor of California, who in a million years would have thought that? He thought it because he set it as a goal. And it, you know, I, I'm sitting here right now in our Hand of Man Museum on Vancouver Island. It, it's a 17,000-square-foot facility that I envisioned when I was 10 years old. I was going to write a novel, and I was going to do the uh, this museum, this Hand of Man Museum. And that's a goal that has come to fruition, but it took me another 55 years, so more than half a century, of focusing on that goal to make it, to realize it. And, and you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger, I'm not comparing him with me other than I, I think my, at one point I got my calves to be half as big as <laughs> So, so that, that's, a, that's a funny true story. I was, I was caught in a uh, cabin. We got blizzarded out in northern British Columbia. And in that cabin, it was like an old trapper's cabin, there was one magazine, and we were trapped there for almost two weeks, and it was a muscle magazine. I don't know why the trapper had a muscle magazine, but they also they had all the measurements in that magazine of all the these you know bodybuilders. And the only one that I beat on any measurement, I'm not a little guy, I'm like 6'3 and you know, weigh 220. The only measurement that I beat any of those muscle people on was my calves. I beat the one woman bodybuilder. And that was it. That was it. Every, I mean, those guys are freaks. So, so it's uh, you know, like I said, I'm not. I will never compare myself to Arnold, but I do really respect the way he set his life, set goals for himself, and attain those goals. If you if you don't to put it another way, if you um, people come in our museum and they see, you know, there, there's some of my history on the walls. It's not about me at all, but there's pictures, and and you know, they they think, wow, you, you've lived this amazing life and you've done this. And I say, well, you know, if you drive in one direction for half a century and don't take any side roads, you end up somewhere. Mm-hmm. And this is where I've ended up because I, I did the same thing, you know, different goals than Arnold, obviously you can tell that. But, uh, but, uh, up here though, you could have it up yeah, here. You can yeah, totally mental, have uh, mental toughness. Sure. Yeah. And, and I, there's things that are, you know, I had choices in my life all the way along. Those side roads, side roads, side roads. Oh, so many side roads. You, you want to have $100 million, $200 million. Yeah. That's just, you have to take this road. Well, it's there, but that's not my goal. You know I mean? I, right. We did well. But it was never my goal to waste my life. Living your life is your goal. Yeah. Live experience. Yeah, same. Same. That's why I get to do this, this, this gig. I get to have a great conversation with you and from another country and show my listener that it's okay to have just a great conversation and, and tolerance with one another on any of the subjects that may be just tolerance. Like you said, we need to pass that out there to people. You know, I, I, I love that. Yeah, this, this world today, we're so, it's so divisive out there. Yeah. And, and when you actually look at it, you say, well, I'm tolerant and you're just, you know, you're not agreeing with my point of view. But I'm the tolerant. Well, wait a minute. If, they, if you think they're not agreeing with your point of view, it means you're intolerant. Right. And that's everybody looking at it from each way. You know, we just have to say, okay, yeah, I get it. You know, sure. You want and then everybody that. just gets a label like, put on them. If they just think one thing against the other person, it's like, oh, you're this whole thing. You're this whole side. It's like, no, I just have a difference of opinion on something. But we can, you know, rationally have a conversation. They used to say, don't talk about two things at the dinner table here. And that's politics and religion. And it's like, wham. Let's just do the opposite. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. 
Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. You know, my sister is, is uh, we're, we're <laughs> same family, total opposites. I mean, you know, she, she was a librarian, says I have a big footprint, blah, blah, blah. But, and... You know, there was a lot of years, there was probably 20 years, where we just didn't talk. I mean, I didn't think it was me, and she probably didn't think it was her. And it wasn't until I wrote this book, Call Me Hunter, because she's a librarian, she respects of course. that. And suddenly, it was, you know, suddenly I did something that she could understand and, and wrap her head around and, and have respect for. And that was the catalyst that allowed her and I to start talking again. And, and civilized, we, uh, you know, and she has her point of view on politics. Well, you're siblings, too, and so there's that, you know, of course. And we're diametrically opposed in that. My, you know, my dad was of the same, you know, political leanings as she was, or she is. And, uh, you know, him and I would talk, and it would always end up with the same, same conversation. And that's his, his parting comment, well, you're just stupid. And that was, you know. Of course, because of course. We, yeah. Yeah, you know, but I mean, I was just trying to point out, well, wait a minute, here's a tiny little flaw in, the, in your thinking here. You sure. know, like, you know, we need business because without business, you know, you can't just give, 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 because who gives if there's nobody employed? If there's, there's nothing, nobody, 100%. Nobody making money on the business side. I mean, But if there's people know, making money on the business side, they should give, give, give a little bit. I'm just saying, okay? Give said a little stream. There, you know, <laughs> you know what's what really, you know what's funny about that is, it, Karl Marx said, he said, from those according to their ability to those according to their need. So you, you bring that same conversation in, you know, Karl Marx. Are you kidding me? You're quoting Karl Marx in a, in a conservative business meeting. But the reality is he's right about that. If you can, you should. And, you know, our museum here is uh, 17,000 square feet. And, and it's filled with, I couldn't even value it, tens of millions of dollars worth of stuff. And we're my wife and I are giving it all away to a foundation mm-hmm. and endowment to cover expenses for the next 40 years. Mm-hmm. Right now, it's donation only because I grew up in a trailer park and I could not have come in for a $1 cover charge. But for donation, I could have brought in a grasshopper and, and- or, or a pretty <laughs> rock. You know, so, so this will never have a cover charge so that somebody out there that doesn't have money that can't afford to come in. Can still enjoy it. A little boy came in the other day with a moose tooth that he found. And that was his donation. And he was, you know, this little boy, who knows what he'll do in the next 50 years. This museum may have inspired him. So this, we're making sure that this museum will be around for the next 40 years. And, you know, all expenses covered. So it'll always be donation. And, and it's it's because we can. You know, what, what am I going to do? Have a giant garage sale or? or yeah. You know, no, just keep it all together. Here. Yeah, just keep it going. Yeah, keep it going. Give it away. And, and that's, you know, I, I think our, you know, the business side of things. I, I my sisters say things I see and I agree with some of the points. You know, but I think sure. the business also has to open up their mind and say, Okay, yeah, we you know, we have billions of dollars. What, what are you gonna do with billions of dollars? Make a legacy that you know, uh, an ode to yourself play forever. I mean mm-hmm. it's you give it away. You know, give it away. And, yeah. and I think I'm hoping that some of these very wealthy people will recognize that and, and you know 
taxes aren't necessarily the way to do it. They should just do it. And, and you know, there's probably a billionaire out there sitting there going, what does that guy know? Or me too, right? I, the taxes I felt like were a ton this year for my business. I don't want them to go to a Patriot missile that gets its wires ripped out. Okay. That's not where I want my tax dollars to go. I want my tax dollars to go, hopefully, to those that are on the programs that are using the tax dollars, right? That's if that's the case, like my fellow neighbor, not to ripped out wires in a Patriot missile, bro. I don't want that. That's a waste of tax dollars. <laughs> All of us, I don't think there's any of us has a problem with paying taxes. Yeah. Out here in Canada, where I'm, you know, we're, I'm reaching out to you from, you know, I, I just see it's so sad what they use the money for. And, it, and it's to create jobs. Well, they create jobs that aren't really productive jobs. They're just, you know, paying each other to do, you know, shuffle paper. I mm-hmm. shuffle it over here. Well, your job is to divide it up into stacks and your job is now to number the stacks and your job is to now put the stacks back in another pile. And what was produced? And and this is this is a bit of a problem. This is where I'm leaning towards the business side. Well, mm-hmm. they productive. Well, let's produce something. Whatever that happens to be, whether it's just picking up garbage along the side of the road or, or fixing a stream so the salmon can come up, I don't care. But moving papers around just for the sake of creating employment is, is not a, and I, that's what bothers me. When it could be condensed to like maybe one person, you know, you have all these different offshoots. They could be doing other things that are more productive. You could probably condense it to a quarter of a person yeah. and do that. An app. Three other areas. <laughs> a thumb touch. One person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trust me, don't get me started on that because we're in the production business up here in Canada and it's, it's just astounding. I mean, it's socialized, so we can't produce like I can for the states, you know, where, where it's based on what I can produce as good as I can. And if I can save money on something and do it and do a better production and do it this way, great, do it. If I can do it with four people, great. So here, you know, we have to hire this person, this person, this, and it's mandated by the government. We have to do it. So you don't make money. Well, what's the motivation then to create anything good? Well, so like here in Utah, we have like, uh, if you bring the crew here, SAG or whoever it is, you know, SAG union style, et cetera, you have to hire 75% Utah, Utahns yeah. for the crew or in cast, right? And then you can bring in the outside stars. Is that kind of what you're touching on is having these types of rules over your production company that are... Yeah, like that. I mean, I, you know, and this is, this is the other side of it, the flip side of it. I get it. You know, I don't want someone from California coming in with... 10 semi-trailers, all California, Los Angeles people, mm-hmm. and walking out to my wilderness to take videos of the beautiful mountains. I, you know, why wouldn't you have people that are local? So I get that side of it, too. You know, so, so there, but there's some kind of a common sense balance in there. You know, you shouldn't be forced to hire so many people that you can't make a living at it because then you don't do it. Uh, you know, right. and, and it should be government money that's then allowing you to do it that way, which is what happens up here. But, but I do get that. I mean, you know, if we're, we're in the First Nations, we call them up here. You guys call them Native Americans. Okay. Down south. If we're in their, you know, territories and their land, why not hire them too? Exactly. You know, if, they're, if they're living there, let's, let's bring the money into the community. I, I'm all for it. I've seen that work all over the world, which is part of the reason I'm a proponent for hunting as a conservation tool mm-hmm. around the world. In what the dollars do, you know, new schools, teachers, doctors that can come in they build roads they actually get a, a vehicle they can hire someone to you know watch over the wildlife to manage it they, these are all these are all good things for the community it comes about because money comes in from the outside so mm-hmm. so i'm like i say there's a common sense on all this that we need to somewhere 
you know, find common ground. And again, it takes tolerance listening to somebody's point of view. Exactly. And here in Utah, the hunt for just regular deer, you know, your buck and your doe deer, uh, actually it's probably just buck during the fall seasons coming up. You know, you have to get tagged for that. You have to get a permit. Like, so you would do, you, you get a, a deer hunting license, right? You go through all those safety requirements to get your hunter's ed and hunter's safety, et cetera. You apply for your permit, but it's only in certain areas. Back in the day when my dad used to go out and hunt for deer and I'd go with him on his side, it was like, let's just go. We're going to go out. We're going to drive out. We're just going to get out of the car and hike into the mountains and see what we find. But now it's like more structured. You have to go to this piece of the puzzle and your permit's only good for this area. What do you think about that? Do you think uh, as conservation of a hunter, do you think, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course I do. <laughs> I just check it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, uh, you know, again, it, it goes back to the, there's 8 billion of us in this world. And, and back 40 years ago, there was less people, True. you know, but there was more availability for the, the wildlife resource. But if, if you're going to have wildlife surviving into the future, you've got to manage it. Anyone that thinks that there's a, any larger species of animal in this world that isn't managed right now by science is just out to lunch. Every single name, whales, right, right down to rabbits, it's all managed. So when you have so many people for and the supply is so limited nowadays, mm -hmm then you have to manage it. And that's that's why they have these various rules and regulations. I, I mean, on top of the fact that I think it was a good thing, you know, it was it was pretty wild west back when I grew up. When I, you know, when I went out with my dad 60 years ago, I mean, it was really wild west. It was a bang, bang, bang. And, you know, I mean, I knew two people that had been shot, you know, accidentally, you know, accidental discharges. You know, that kind of thing needed to be regulated and, and uh, people need to be educated that go out a firearm. You know, you better know how to use that thing, and, and you better be able to identify the animals. Dad's day, you know, they, they just shot whatever they saw. They didn't worry about that. Rules and regulations, you know, that, that was... Uh, it was food. It was food. It was a hamburger running across the it, field. Don't it tell sure me. was. You know, that can't be. That's not sustainable into the future. It's got to be, you know, there's got to be a spiritual relationship with the animal for the people that actually hunt them, in my opinion. I think the food is a big part of it, mm -hmm. or a part of it, but... but Certainly, there has to be, you know, a different, higher level of respect for the animal than maybe what my dad had for. You know, I like to say at the end of the day, we're all living on this earth. We would be a trietarian. A trietarian means I would try to do anything and eat anything to live, right? If there's nothing around, you're going to do what you have to do because a hungry person is a hungry person. And they're like, all of a sudden you go from, oh, I just eat lettuce to like, hmm, that squirrel, you know, it's like, <laughs> I'm hungry. My tummy and my head tell me to get that squirrel. Both my brains are telling me to eat that thing, right? It's just, you know, I feel that if I was to hunt it in Alaska per se, right? Let's just go with that thought process. I would shoot the elk, do all of its, you know, butchering to the elk and then leave the rest of it there to let it go onto its journey. I feel like that's how I would want to be as that hunter, you know, have some kind of that connection. That's why I was saying, do you feel like you have a connection when you take the animal? You know, it's like, you know. Yeah, you, you 100% do. And, and you're also, when you're part of nature, that that's the balance. I mean, the, the wolves have to eat. The grizzly bears, you know, they're scavengers. They need mm -hmm. to eat. The, uh, the bulls, any of the bulls, but, you know, any, any of the wolverines, the smaller creatures, they all need to eat as well. So they... You know, no, no part of an animal is wasted, even if, it, you know, it, it doesn't have to go through a human gut. It, mm -hmm. it still is right. wasted. 
that's going to be used in the, in the wildlands. And, and when you're partaking of that, when you're embracing that part of nature, then it, it just becomes honestly natural. You, you know, bits and pieces you leave. Now, you know, back to your point, in the trinitarian, which I love. I may borrow that down below. Yeah, you can go ahead. Trinitarian, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you were truly starving, mm-hmm. I mean, those other creatures become food too. And, and I mean, that gut pile becomes bait to bring those other creatures mm-hmm. in. I mean, you're going to, and whatever is the bait there is probably just the smell that's left because you're going to eat everything. The, you know, the intestines, the lining, the, the tripe, whatever, you're going to eat it, the cull fat. I, I eat that anyway. The liver, kidneys, all that I eat already. Nose, tongue, I mean, that's those are delicacies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Let alone I, being super hungry and just looking at it and saying, I'm going to eat it. You're like, hey, I already eat that. But when you're hungry and, and the only thing you have left is just, <laughs> yeah. And it, again, to your point, if you travel much and you're in, in places like West Africa, China, there's no, you know, around the people, there's no wildlife, there's no animals, there's no birds. Well, why? Well, because they've been eaten, because people are hungry. And that, that is, that's our, our biggest issue we're going to have to face at some Jeez. point down the road. You just opened it's, my mind just now. Literally, yeah. I didn't even think that the reason why it would be scarce is because they're just eating it all, right? It's like... There's a, there's a lake out here that was man-made in one of these communities and they opened it to fishing and everybody comes around and has fished it all out to take it home and eat all the fish, you know, like, it's like, what do you expect? And then the people that live there are like, where's all the fish? You know know what? That's just the fish that we consider to be edible game fish. You know, there's the trash fish. They're probably still there. But I'll guarantee you that there'll be people that are catching those right now and eating those as well. Correct. I mean, I eat gar. I eat gar. I think they're excellent. And if you go to these poor, you know, foreign countries where people are, are truly hungry, their nets are designed to catch fish down to one inch, little tiny, little like crustacean shrimp that are they're so tiny we wouldn't even consider. But they get a little, you know, handful of them that goes in their soup. That's that's protein. When you're hungry, that's that, that's the absolute truth. You'll eat anything, and all the rest is ideology that go by the wayside when the time comes. You know, and I say there's got to be a spiritual relationship with the animal. That's a luxury. You know, it's it, it's a luxury until you know you really truly believe that this animal is is you need it to survive. Then you're going to have a relationship with it where you're going to put it on a pedestal and deify it. So mm-hmm. it's. Yeah, it, it's uh, it'll be an interesting world in the future. When depending on what happens, you know there may come a day. You know, my wife doesn't hunt; she will fly out, out the door. I mean, we're total opposites, lady, trap, beauty, beast. Sure, <laughs> she would never hurt a, a, a flea, but she says, "Why would she hunt?" You know, I, I hunt; I bring the food home, so there's no need for her. She said, if her family was hungry, she would kill. Oh, she would kill to eat. And anybody with, like I say, the ideologies that say, I would, I'll starve to death, you know, right? So let's, I mean, I'm not saying there isn't people that, you know, that won't light themselves on fire to show their faith in something or to protest. There are, but they are the extreme outer, you know, tiny, tiny, tiny minority. Yeah. Uh, the rest of us are going to do exactly what you say. That's, that thing's moving. That thing's protein. I'm hungry. My tummy says I'm hungry. My brain says if I don't need it, we're going to kill it and eat it. And, and I mean, you don't have to go very far back in history, and probably happening right now today somewhere where 
someone's in a place where they're starving and their buddy right next to them is starting to look pretty tasty. Well, we yeah, had this, that big this, thing back in the day called the Donner Party here that Americans always talk about in school. The Donner Party, they couldn't get over the past and they wound up eating each other. This is Franklin. You know, the, 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 this is the expedition up in the Arctic. The, this is over and over greenly. They, they just name them, name them. They Even Shackleton went, probably had some guys that ate themselves. Okay. I, you know, Shackleton, Shackleton is the one guy uh-huh. that, I mean, he is the best of the best. He is me, the best. He, he brought his men through that. Oh. I mean, didn't lose anybody. So I, and, and, you know, they didn't degrade down into the Lord of the Flies where, you know, we're going to kill, you know, Piggy or whatever his name is. It, yeah, no, know, that's it. <laughs> he, he was, he ruled. And, and I mean, that's Shackleton me was one of the greatest leaders that this world has ever seen. Explorer, and, hunter, gatherer, the whole nine yeah. yards. And, and, you know, Yes, he was part of the British Empire, so they, you know, they were colonists, and they did a lot of things that nowadays we look back on. But we weren't living in those days. You know what I tell but, folks when I come into that conversation? I have a friend, a Native American, down here, and I said, you know, I'm sorry for what happened. I didn't do any of that. I don't know how to atone for that, but I'll be a good steward of what I have today for the future. And he's like, "That's cool, bro. That's what's up," you know? Because I was like, "I don't know how to." tell you or make amends or tell you i'm sorry for that that's not me i'm today so if i have land here i'm just gonna take care of it uh in that namesake because i can't help it no and, and you what you end up with is a, is a um, virtue signaling by by people that are trying to look like they're but they're not going to give up their land either you mm-hmm. know they, they you know they, they'll and i'm talking about white people that are they're you know, that's me. Yeah. I can't, I, I'm in that category. All right. All right. It is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. It is. And it's happened all over the world, yeah. all through history, all the continents, except Antarctica that we know of, you know, it's just, it's what happens. And, and, and I'm sure that all through Genghis Khan probably sat there and, and you know, felt terrible of what he did. I don't know. Maybe he, he did, was a trillionaire. Uh, Genghis Khan, yeah. his empire had a, a trillion dollars. He, he had so much money back then. Yeah, he, he makes Alexander the Great look like a kindergarten student. I, I mean, mean trillion. You know, it's like I can't. I don't. I, that money is just. That's just a. I will. I, I learned the word. Yeah. <laughs> back in the day, you know, that's eight hundred years ago. So, yeah. so I, I mean, it, it, it's uh, the world's going to be an interesting place going forward. And, and as I said, you, we better start thinking about it in common sense terms, not in ideological terms, because. It, we're, we're going to be faced with it at some point, and I think I'd rather be prepared. And I'm not a preppy guy, but 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 to think that it's going to continue is just is just not. I mean, it's just not. It's uh, we're going to have the ostrich have to, in the sand, like the head in the sand, and the ass is out to be shot. You know, it's like <laughs> here's your target, <laughs> but I don't see it coming. No. Oops. Oh, submarine yeah, that, down one bubble. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I have to keep this on. My wife's not well. This last year and 10 months have been pretty rough for her, obviously, and for our family. So so I have my phone on for that was the hospital. And, and I, I just have to be, I have, I, no matter what I'm doing, the, the world ends at that moment. Uh, it's, uh, you know, about Louisa, I have to deal with that. So well, I Well, my love to you and your family right now for whatever's on your mind, just so you know that. Thanks for being a, well, the face of your company and pushing forward for your museum. 
you know, we're all we're all going to face that. mortality is something yes. that no one's been able to avoid yet. There's been what eight or nine billion of us have gone through it already, and there's eight billion of us on this earth right now that are going to go through it. And again, the ostrich in the sand. You you stick your head in the sand and think that's not going to happen to you. No, it is going to happen. I mean, it's it every single one of us is going to have to deal with this at, at some level. You know, Jordan Peterson, I think, said that, uh, you know, every person that you know is going to or is going through, you know, great sorrow. And, and um, you know, that's stuff to deal with. You, you just do your best and you, you start to realize that every day is precious and don't squander a single day. It's, it's you know, we, there's no readers. So don't don't waste it. And that, that's what we try to do through this whole time. And they gave her three months to live a year and 10 months ago. So, and it was rough. I was with her right minutes before I raced the podcast and I'll, I'll head right back home. And, and, but you know what? It, it's, it's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. We sat and had coffee and looked out over our land and, you know, watched the hawk take a rabbit in front of us. And I mean, it's just, you, you don't let tomorrow steal today. And, and we're not letting that happen. So, but what it does is cause me to, get phone calls in the middle of podcast possible. So, so again, I apologize for that. No, I love it. I love it. I think that's actually wholesome. And I'm glad that you opened up a little bit about that. And you said at the beginning of the show, you're like, Hey, Rad, I'm here to talk to you and get to know you too. And, and thanks for, uh, just being real about it. You know, we like, there's a band called Alice in Chains. You may have heard of it. And they have a quote in their song that says we're born into the grave. And so, you know, there's a thing about that. So we all know it. It's just, you got to own it and you got to move forward with it. You can't dwell on it. You just got to live today because today is what you have in front of you right now. comes back to having a goal. If you're going to do that, you know, then, then set a goal for yourself. Don't waste the time that we have, unless that's your goal. I mean, <laughs> Ferdinand the Bull sat there and sniffed flowers all day long. And, and if someone wants to go sniff flowers for the whole life, have at it. You know, Go sniff I'm flowers not, just for yeah, see it. I mean, I, yeah, I, I mean, I love sniffing flowers. I bring them for my wife every single day and always have. No, no matter where I've been around the world, we've been married 39 years, um, soulmates. Uh, I was head over heels in love the day I, on our first date, I knew I was going to marry her, and I'm even more in love now. And I, all around the world, I pick flowers for her no matter where I am, and I'll get my cameraman or do a selfie holding the flowers and making a little heart sign. and, and you know, I can't get them back to her because I, mean, I was doing this 40 years ago, 30 years ago, 20 sure. years ago. You couldn't just send a text message with a flower. But when I got home, I could give her all these flower pictures. And, you know, so, yeah, I think there's something to be said for that, too. It's just you know, I'm not going to spend my life doing that. Yeah, so, right, yeah. right, right. Now, being out in the field, seeing some flowers, and then all of a sudden you see the beast you're tracking, right? You're like, oh, hey, these flowers remind me of my wife. Wait, what's that? Oh, there it is. I'm hunting that. And then you're out of the flowers and you're right into focus on it, right? And so you got your archery, you got your, your compound bow. Are you using a are you using a, a release? Are you using a trigger release system? Is that how you roll? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm old enough that when I started, it was, it was finger tap fingers. Yeah, yeah, same. I was originally longbows. I mean, recurves were just started then. I mean, they've been around a long time, but my first bow was a longbow. And, and it, but I, you know, nowadays, just for the accuracy, you know, I, I don't use a thumb release. I use a finger trigger release. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, yeah, you know, I, I embrace the modern, but I'm no techie guy. There's guys that, you know, I, I couldn't even set up my own bowl properly. I, I have someone that's an expert do that for me. I can set it in, I can shoot it, you know, it, but I can't, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a techie guy. On, on what, pound, what pound are you pulling on your, uh, on your bow for like, say an elk? Uh, you know, nowadays I shoot 60. 60? Um, yeah, but in the older days, it would be 70 and 80. Yeah. But 72 was about where I sat most of the time. But, you know, nowadays, they, they've got the science down with the cams. So it's an art. So they they know a 60-pound bow now is the same as a 90-pound bow back in the day in, in terms of energy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just the arrows, every, everything is better, technology is better. Just more dynamic. It's less less muscle having to pull that back. I remember my dad got a compound bow. He was so excited. My dad was a former Green Beret, and so he always wanted to go out and do a little hunting. And he'd go do uh, uh, this pond in Kaysville, Utah here, and 4 or 5 in the morning he'd be out there, and he'd just be throwing darts at carps. And uh, they'd have the prongs that popped out, and it would reel on his his uh, compound bow. But it was a 75-pound bow. He's like, all right, little Aaron, my son, go ahead and pull that back. I'm like, Aah. I just trying so hard. And then he would just do it and just ease back right back. And I was just like, oh, dad, you're the man. 75 pounds is what he was pulling on that. There's technique involved too. I mean, you use your, use your big muscles. It's, it's, so most people try and pull with their arm. You can't, you gotta, you gotta really pull it back. If they open your chest up, but it, you know, nowadays the, uh, for archery for fish, I, I mean, I was shooting hundred pound guard. Alligator guard down in the Mississippi River a couple of years, what, five years ago. Holy cow. Five years ago, yeah. that you use 28 pounds because you don't want to blow the, the uh, harpoon point right through the fish. You want it to get into the skin and then be able to reel it back in. So, so yeah, 28 pounds are, and that's something for anybody that's uh, interested in archery is, is, is a, one of the fastest growing parts or components of our hunting gathering world is, is archery for fish. I don't know what they call it. Fish bull hunting. Farchery. But Steve Cobring is uh, the greatest archer that I've met in the world. And Steve has designed a new fishing archery bow. That's his big thing now is going all over trying to get these crazy species of fish, you know, which they, most of them are considered trash fish by, you know, the game fishermen. You know, they wouldn't, they thumb their nose on that sure. stuff. But yeah, it, it's, it's a, your dad was way, way ahead of his time doing it. Yeah, that was the eighties. Sure. Yeah, eighty-eight. I think he got that compound bow from a pawn shop. He just saw it and said, "I'll take that." He knew Rambo was so, huge in the theaters. Come on, he's a Green Beret. He's gonna be getting a compound bow. I just watched. I just watched First Blood the other day again oh. for after all these years. It's still a great movie. Great movie. Sylvester Stallone is still so, he was great. He's a yeah, stud. Yeah, it, so Stallone's he's. He was great then, and he's still great. He's he's a uh, he's a cool guy. They drew first blood, not me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. I love it. Yeah, growing up on that, I remember seeing it in a beta. It was like a red. Oh, that was Red Dawn. Red Dawn was a red VHS tape. Now I'm getting all stuck in the '80s here on my movies. But yeah, Rambo, dude. First Blood, First Blood Part Two, First Blood Part Three, First Blood Part Four, <laughs> Last Blood. Yeah, I think even in the Arnold uh, documentary, they had. They had uh, Sylvester on there talking about uh, how you know he had to kill more people, and you know that Arnold would kill more, and he had you know, yeah. So it was a, yeah. The eighties were were 
What, what, a, what I need amazing. to kill 150 people in this movie because he killed 149 in the last one. And so I need to kill at least 150, he says. You know, yeah. it's like a Terminator. Don't think, don't think that they'd be uh, competing, but I guess, you know, it's competition at every level. Again, setting goals. I want to be the best in the world. Well, if that means doing movies and, and killing Hitting people. And, yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. They killed lots of people, but in the, in the 80s, it didn't really seem like that. To me, the violence I see nowadays on TV is 100 times worse than that stuff. That was kind of cartooning almost. I mean, they look cartoon. With well, that's because we've become jaded to this uh, kind of barbarianism of, uh, you know, the UFC. Uh, you know, used to be a video that you had to rent in a video store that was behind the curtain. You had to be 21 to get this movie that had all these different types of acts going on it. And that was where UFC was. And, and I'm not blaming everything on that, but we get so jaded to seeing these violent acts. Now we see where 150 guys get killed in an old Rambo movie. Today's violent acts are far worse than that. Yeah, I think so. As you know, in the video games, I mean, that's 150. It's like, you better do that in the first 20 seconds or you're, you're, you're leveling up. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, yeah. We're, we're inured to that. we compartmentalized it mm-hmm. and think about it that well that's a light and i don't know maybe it's well if you look at life. these you know combat sports that are out there kids never really look to play combat sports they played baseball football soccer but the generation today that are the nine and 12 year olds are saying i want a career in that ufc the guys that were in ufc didn't come from that they came from like bull riding or like boxing and martial arts you know uh, kickboxing uh, blood sport yeah, it was so underground. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean the, my era, that was just how you survived in school. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, didn't, you didn't want to get beat up. Well, you better fight back. You know, it's they're gonna, it's gonna happen at some point. It was, yeah, it was you know, but things have changed. I mean, you can't, yeah. you know, the, what we did back in those days, you'd be kicked out of school forever. You know, never allowed back in. So I, you know. Times change. I don't know. Talk to me in a thousand years or ten thousand years. We'll, All right. Where we do this podcast and we'll say, "Remember we said that? Boy, were we dumb saying that? But boy, were we prescient when we said that?" You know right, exactly. We, Very Arnold Schwarzenegger. If you listen to me today, play me on your VCR tomorrow. But listen to me at some point. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and all those things we're talking about, right and wrong. Talk to me in a million years. We can't even fathom that. Like our brains don't compute that. We can look back. You know, maybe 50 years and say, oh, and then we forget about what happened beyond that even. Most people, and some of us look 100, some of historians look back 1,000, 10,000. We talked about yeah. Angus Khan. And our brains don't fathom a million years. And, and that's why you know, we're not a cosmic event. We'll, we'll figure this out one way, or it will be figured out for us. You know, we can't continue to have 8 billion and we're going to have 16 billion, 32. I mean, it's naive to think that's going to happen. So, so, you know, we'll, we'll revisit all this. And, uh, it's easy. You make it seem like it's just an infestation of the space rock that we're just this bacteria that's just going to, like, like eat it away and turn it into Mars. Yeah. I mean, it won't happen because nature is such a powerful, powerful force. You know, on this Earth, we, I mean, <laughs> nature will – we're an experiment. Oh, it wins. Yes. Yeah, I mean, yes, and you know, people of faith. There's a reason we have faith because you got to believe there's something out there for sure. There is. You can't deny it. I mean, look, look. Just look up, right? All the all of our ancestors and all of those folks that came from like the Mayans and all of the different, you know, from all across the different areas of the world, right? Where they find these different symbols that people looking up or trying to find something greater from 
different cultures, but they're like the same designs. You know, it's yeah. like sure we the, we we are we're products of, of a creative force that you know God, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, and I'm not you know my own beliefs are my beliefs. I'm not judging other people for their beliefs. But but you sit out in nature in that cathedral that is nature in the wildlands. You can't help but get with the flow and, and understand that oh, yeah, this is there's a greater, bigger picture here that we're that you know we think we're important. But again, talk to me in ten thousand years. Oh, I stood on the edge of a waterfall at Yellowstone. You know, not too close. Don't get, come at me. <laughs> close enough to know that that's the earth churning. To know that if I fell in there, I'm done. Yeah, yeah. I stood on the. Uh, on the lip of a, the crater of the volcano on Rabul that, you know, it blew up in the 90s and it just blew up recently again. You know, when I looked down into that pit, and this wasn't a bubbly, pretty lava, you know, the, 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 and, and pretty orange. This was like a power I, I can't even describe. It's indescribable to look down and, and this, the power of this earth, it, you are insignificant. I mean, there's, I just, I, I was at that point, you know, just realized how truly nothing we are and, and what this earth wants. And I mean, it was shooting up boulders the size of Volkswagens up into their boom, you know, boom. And the, the volcanists were on a, on a, another mountain about 20 miles away. And, you know, we went over them first and they gave us instruments because they wouldn't go up. They said, this thing's going to go at some point and, you know, we're not going there but if you, you know, wouldn't mind taking these instruments up yeah so, just get a little dip in there would you thanks <laughs> oh, no. No, I mean, it was it, it was down below us I, it, I got to the rim there's there's video uh, you know like i'm i screamed at it just like, no you know because i you know i will not feel fear mm-hmm. and that's what this the power of that was to me an affront it was trying to make me feel fear insignificant fine but never never fear i don't care how powerful something is or how dangerous or how much trouble I'm, I'm not going to feel fear. But uh, I mean, it was every ounce of my body just, I will not feel fear. I was screaming it back at this noise. Uh, I mean, we're, we're lucky it didn't, it didn't explode then. It did a few months later and, and we were vaporized. My wife was killed because I had her son there as a videographer and, yeah. Oh yeah, you're pulling everyone in. It's like, come with me. <laughs> yeah, but but it was you realize the power of the earth when you're truly on that edge, and, and that's that was a literal and figurative edge. The, the, this earth is not; it'll always be here. The energy of this earth may change in form. Talk, look at the dinosaurs. You know, the biomass is still here. The energy is still here. It's just in different form, and we release that amount of this energy. I mean, again, this is the science. Well, you, you start getting deep into philosophical talk here, and you know, I spend a lot of time on the mountains, so I yeah. had a lot of time to, to think about these things. I like and, that. I, I snowboard. My snowboards are just right here behind me, right there. My wife and mine, right above the pink bunny on the table, right there. <laughs> and so we're always in the mountains, always in the snow always riding, always seeing crystals of snow just glittering in our faces as we're just in this snow globe. I'm sure you've been in a snow globe while you're out there in the middle of nowhere and it's just snowing and you're just like, this is a really pristine environment. And, you know, it's just 
mesmerizing. Not only are you out there doing your hunt, but you're just, you're just connecting. I, I hate to say it like that, but you are. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I, I was just in Toronto here a couple of days ago. I had to go down for a, a five minute interview. And as I was heading back to the airport, I videoed the, the high rise after high rise after high rise after high rise. And there were art buildings. I mean, it's just people living 20, yeah. 30 stories on top of each other, you know, four or five or eight to the level. I don't even know. And I, I actually, I don't want to say I felt sorry, but I, I, I felt melancholy because those people, when, when would they ever feel that, you know, that you're talking about on, on the mountain, the snow, you know, you, they'll see it going by their window on the 30th floor, but, but they, to, to actually, again, get in touch with your ancestral soul. How do you do that in, in a major city? I guess maybe you go on a holiday. You, you know, to try to go on an expedition, you you pay somebody to take you out and hope that they can give you that solace of mental yeah. stability that I get from being out in the mountains. Yeah, of course it is, and, and it's centering. And, yeah, but uh, but I, it sure makes sense why things are so divisive nowadays. Because there's people like you, people like me that live our lives out there and, and get it. You know, at least we think we get it. I think I get uh, it. And you know, there's people live in the city and they look at us like. You guys are freaks. Like, you know, what restaurant did you eat last night? Like, we yeah. got to go into this fanciest club that's so hard to get into, and we got in. You know, that's their reality, and, and that's where they find their solace, I guess. Uh, you know, I've been in that fancy club. You know, I've been to it. I've been like, hey, come here. Let me show you something. that You have to have this secret pass on your phone to show this guy. Then you have to have another secret pass on the phone to show this guy. And then this is what they want to show you, and it's a, it's a concrete jungle. Yeah. That's their jungle. Yeah, and again... I don't know. I, I've done both. I've yeah. done both. You know, restaurants where you're supposed to wait. The chef is, is a hunter. You know, so you, so you get in there and it's great. You know, it's wonderful. It, it, but, but I, would I stand in line from eight in the morning to hopefully yeah. get in for lunch? Maybe at, at one in the afternoon because it's the place to eat at. I, uh, I mean, however, people are sitting on it. I sat 36 days last year, every day from dawn. Till noon, got off stand for two hours, and then went back on stand till dark. Thirty-six days in a row, because I was after one particular white-tailed deer. Saw lots of other deer. Saw rabbits, squirrels. Saw, you know, coyotes. Saw incredible you know, moose walk by myself. It, that's my my beautiful reality. Yeah. And, and, you know, thirty-six days. What a waste of time if you're in the city, looking at my world. You know, in my life, and saying that's. What did you accomplish? Yeah. You know, what did you do? You, didn't, you know, there's nothing. What, what was your job? I, I don't know. I mean, to them, it's got to look just as as weird as you know, living on top of the other stack, mile yeah. after mile of, of just high rises. So, so again, that, that's I can see why there's divisiveness in this world nowadays because how can they possibly relate to what you know what I can relate to, and how am I supposed to relate? To make me live. In, I would you you I, to me, it's a prison. Yeah, and it, it would be a tomb, especially when you, you know, when you know, someday we are going to get an actual pandemic, and and you know, that's a tomb. It's just what level of the tomb you're going to be entombed at. Right. We just kind of live through that, you know, and uh, you know, we got to prepare ourselves for just living our life today because now we're 
back to society. People can go out and explore and be a little more freer than it was. And so, I mean, we should take advantage of that and just go get outside. You know, my buddy, he's a rock star and he travels all over. And when he's home for longer than like 30 days, it's nothing personal. It's just that he has to be back on the road. He just has to be going. It's not personal to anybody. He's not here to not see me or see anybody. He's just like, I'll see him at a show. Hey, what's up, bro? He's like, hey, what's up, bro? It's like, I don't even have to go to his house. He just has to go. And he's one guy that'll say, I've been everywhere, but nowhere at the same time. He's like, I get to go all these places, these big, huge arenas, but I don't get to like really go explore and see the Appalachian Mountains or go into anywhere past the Toronto arena. You know what I mean? So it's like kind of stuck in this nine to five of that, but has to always be going. And it seems like you are too. And, and are you saying that you're 70 years old? Is that what you're telling me when you said 60 years ago? Yeah, I'm 65. 65. So you've been doing this. You've been staying the course in your life for 65 years. So I just want to let my listener know that there's advice to be taken from him because he is 65 years old. Okay. So he has lived his life through trees, through storms, through scaling cliff sides, from hunting and gathering and, you know, having executive producers tell him what lighting he needs. Okay. Yeah, I, I was always my own executive producer, so so I I, like, I was unemployed as I said a lot earlier in this podcast. So I I've never had a boss telling me that I have to do this, or you know, I made sure I did it the way I wanted to do it. And and it's yeah, I mean, I at ten years of age, I knew what I would do yeah. and, and what I wanted to accomplish in my life, what goals I wanted to achieve, and and I kept focused on those uh, the entire time. But one was the novel, Call Me Hunter. I, that's exactly I, right. I started, that, I started my first novel when I was 10 years old. I wrote, you know, I got about 10 pages in and said, well, I haven't lived a life yet. I, you know, I can barely write. I couldn't even read before that. Again, it's all on Call Me Hunter because it's fairly autobiographical. The, uh, you otherwise know, I Google had, it. The, <laughs> yeah, I, I had, I had, you, you, you'll, you'll find it there. I had to live life first and that I, I, Pen the first words of Call Me Hunter back in 92, 93. You know, Javag was dead. I hunted him down and I killed him. And I started writing and I, you know, realized still I had not lived enough life. Even though I lived a, another 30 years from when I first started, 40 years. Uh, you know, I, I needed to get out there and keep going and, until I had a story to tell. And that's, that. you know, that's what that, that novel is, 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 you know, you said I'm 65. Yeah, I'm 65 because I, it literally took me that long to live the life I needed to live to be able to have a story yeah. to tell that would be of interest to anybody. And, and I didn't want to make it up out of, out of the blue, which is the game. Why well, I said, go ahead. You know, and there's, there's lines in there that I know people are going to say, okay, that's bullshit. No, not bullshit. It's true. Go check it out. It's call me Hunter. All right. And Jim Shockey, Jim, this book's going to be out. Everybody's going to be checking it out. I have to give a shout out to my local sporting goods store here. Cause I went in and I was talking to him about some archery stuff before our interview. So I knew about triggers. Okay. So I said, yeah, they're like, who are you going to interview Rad? I said, have you ever heard of Jim Shockey? And they just stopped and they just looked at me. I have to say it's at my local Shields right over here because the guy's at the archery counter, okay, at Shields in Sandy, Utah. You boys over there, thank you for dropping what you're doing to show me all the different techniques of the triggers and everything over there so that I could talk to Jim and have a little more understanding because, Jim, I come from a, you're going to wake up Saturday morning, you're going to go to the park, and I've got this guy lined up, and he's going to teach you to do archery by my father. And my dad would wake me up 7 in the morning, get up, sunrise, you're going up to the park, and I would sit there and do recurve 
and learn how to put recurve on and learn how to shoot recurve. So all through Boy Scouts and all through growing up, I love archery and I was really excited to talk to you about, you know, everything that we have had on this conversation. So I just want to say thank you for just being awesome and loving to your wife and your family and the museum. And where's that museum at? It's uh, Vancouver Island. Uh, so it's a, a little place called Duncan, Maple Bay. It's about one hour north of Victoria on Vancouver Island. And Victoria is the capital of British Columbia. Uh, it's the school that our kids went to school in Maple Bay Elementary, actually. They built in 61 and decommissioned in the year 2000. And we bought it in the year 2015. It, you know, it, squatters lived in here. I took four 40 foot containers of personal garbage out of this place. Oh. We bought it. And there was no furnaces, all stolen, copper wiring, copper plumbing, all stolen. It was a derelict building. My, my poor wife, she broke down in tears. She said, it's a white elephant. And I said, I said, no, I have, I have it's my vision. Look, I know. look, yeah, vision. I, I see it. It's my and Arnold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, we had over 26,000 visitors last year. We'll have over over 30,000 this year. Donation only. Anybody can walk in the door. And it, it's uh, the Hand of Man. Anybody can Google it. Hand of Man Museum of Natural History, Cultural Arts, and Conservation. And Call Me Hunter is is based on a game. It's it's all part of this part of this whole journey, this this story of a life lived beyond the pale. And and that's the museum is, is a big part of that. The collecting the art world that because there's a lot of cultural arts in here. That that uh, that's what the premise of the story Call Me Hunter is all about, is that that underground of, of that where where collecting becomes an obsession. You know, it, it becomes pathological for some people, and, and the more money you have, you know, just the worse it the gets. more, the the further you yeah. go to to gather whatever it is, steal it, whatever. Yeah, it's it, your it, passion. It, sure, it's it, yeah, it, it, but it becomes mutated into something beyond that, and you know, there's a healthy level of collecting. I might be just past that level. When you walk in here, you'll see that there's thousands of pieces in here. But, uh, you know, there's a level where it gets to where it's mutated into something that's evil. And that that's what Call Me Hunters, uh, the premise of the story is. Uh, it's based on the art world and the collecting. People that have a, an, a, an innate ability to recognize beauty. You don't see it. You you know, you feel it. And, and you know it, however that sense is uh, triggered. So, so that's that's what it's about is uh, is that that lifetime of collecting for this museum. Well, if you're out there listening and you're in the area, you should go check out the museum. And if you're not in the area and you're going to go visit the area, you should go check out the museum. Or you can probably just visit something down below that we're going to have typed out that might have like a donation to keep the museum also donated. If there's some type of a link, we'll ask for that later. And my guys will put that in the back, uh, back end on the website for you. So there's just an extra link. If somebody wants to click it and send you like a, a moose knuckle. <laughs> don't do that. Please don't do that. U S fish and wildlife. Don't do that. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Only if you're little yeah. Billy and you're in the area, <laughs> yeah, you can Google call me or Google hand of man museum and it'll come up. I mean, they're just, yeah, they're, we'll have that. We'll have that posted up there for you, Jim. Sure. Yeah. Well, listen, I've had you, I've had you for over an hour. You're great. And I, I now want to get you back to the love of your life, which is not me. Okay. And so I love the look, not quite my touch. Remember I said, you feel beauty. 
Yeah. It's just not you like anything very big guy. I've got some hands though. I can get your shoulders. <laughs> Great. Great. So I gave a shout out to the boys over at my archery counter. I love talking to you and I think that you're a wonderful guest and you're a welcome addition to our soft rep mafia family that we have ever growing in the special operations community. You're just as special operations as special operations. All right. So that's how we're going to look at it. I'm going to go ahead and sign off with us saying thank you, Jim Shockey, for being a part of our lives. Call Me Hunter is going to be out in all the bookstores. If you can find it in a local mom and pop, please support local mom and pop bookstore. They are doing a good favor for us all. I also want to mention our book club for Soft Rep. Please check that out. And again, the merch store. And a big salute to Jim. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure. Lots of lots of fun. I'm looking forward to being on again someday. Yeah, we will. Can I get a thumbs up from your hand? Is he there? Can we get a thumbs up from no, you? Yeah, 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 bring him over. There it is. <laughs> all right. Well, you have a wonderful day. And this is Rad Say in Peace. You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio.